Welcome to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. All right, I'm going to be branching out in this episode. The topic is Sikh ethics. Sikh is the religion spelled S-I-K-H, and I am informed that Sikh is the correct pronunciation or close to it. My guest is Keshav Singh. He is a professor of philosophy at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and he's written a lot about various aspects of normativity, some issues in epistemology, and he's been doing some work now on Sikh philosophy, and he has grown up in the Sikh faith and is still practicing. And so it's really interesting to get his perspective on this. There really isn't a lot of work in this area in analytic philosophy, even though depending on how you individuate the various religions, uh, Sikhism could be the fifth largest religion in the world. So it seems like something that educated people should know a lot more about. So there's a feel here that we are just really scratching the surface of something that's barely even begun to be explored in analytic philosophy. There's quite a lot of background set up about the culture and the history and the basic tenets of the religion. And so it takes us a while to really get into a philosophical back and forth, but it's worth the wait. And anyway, I think the historical and cultural stuff is interesting in its own right. One of the ideas that we spend a lot of time talking about is this idea of hame, meaning a sort of false duality of privileging oneself as falsely distinct from the fundamental oneness of reality. This is, is an ultimate source of human vice. So something like egoism, but with more of a metaphysical aspect to it than that word conveys. I hope you enjoy the episode. And I'm here today with Keshav Singh. How are you doing, Keshav? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So I mostly know you as a fellow attendee at the uh, Rocky Mountain Ethics Congress, which I frequented before COVID days. Maybe we'll once again. Yeah, that's right. I think we saw each other two or three times there. Yeah. And uh, I noticed that you had some work on Sikhism. I wanted to talk to you about that. Yeah, no, thanks for being interested in the uh, Sikh philosophy stuff I've been doing lately. It's kind of a, a new project, and I'm excited to talk about it. So I've heard it pronounced Sikhism and Sikhism, which is more correct? So Sikhism is more correct. Um, I'm not exactly sure how the Sikh pronunciation became more prevalent. It's interesting because even non-Sikhs in India will also pronounce it Sikh. I think it might have something to do with actually the literal meaning, the root of the term. So Sikh comes from the Punjabi verb, which means to learn. So, you know, a Sikh is a student, essentially, so someone who, who is learning. And I think the Hindi version of that is, is Sikh. So that's probably how it happened. Um, so, so for once, it's a mispronunciation that's not the fault of Westerners, the mispronunciation was already common. So a lot of people just roll with, you know, Sikh and Sikhism, but, but Sikh and, and Sikhism is actually more correct. 
I also wondered too that maybe Sikhism just has a better resonance to the English speaker's ear because Sikh sounds like sick and sickness right. and Sikh, Sikh yeah. sounds like seeking, like pursuing some spiritual truth or something like that. But yeah, that's probably part of it too. I mean, I think it's hard for, you know, Americans to hear the difference between S-I-C-K and S-I-K-H because it's, it's sick with an aspirated K, but that's not a sound that exists in English. So, you know, we always run into these sorts of issues. Or the things don't match up exactly. Oh, what language is this even? I, f- I forgot. So, well, the answer to that is a little bit complicated. So the mother tongue of the vast majority of Sikhs is Punjabi, and the Punjab region um, is where Sikhism originated. The reason the answer is slightly more complicated than that is Sikh scripture is not written all in Punjabi. It's written in a variety of dialects of Punjabi and similar languages that were sort of common I guess you might say liturgical languages of the time. Okay. Uh, Sikhism it is. Sikhism it is. So one question I had about Sikhism is why it seems to be so little known outside of that community. In fact, the men wear this sort of distinctive headdress that you have. And so in some ways... Uh, Sikhs are very visible, but yet they seem to be invisible at the same time. It's weird. I wonder if this is a part of a deliberate strategy to blend in or to not draw too much attention to themselves as community or something like that. Maybe in some ways, I think there's generally not a deliberate strategy to blend in. And in fact, there's a way in which we're sort of supposed to stand out. And that's actually the point of the Sikh turban is to, to sort of broadcast to the world a certain set of commitments. Um, So in that sense, we're really not supposed to blend in. Um, There's another sense, though, in which, you know, it might have played somewhat of a role that that I think sticks in a lot of diasporic communities have, you know, been like a lot of immigrants, people who they, they go to, you know, Canada or the UK or the US and they kind of keep their heads down and carve out a living and and try to get by and don't really have a lot of energy left over often for that kind of advocacy. But that's actually changed a lot in the last few decades. There are a lot of advocacy groups now, a lot of groups kind of trying to draw attention to uh, sick Americans in the U.S., a lot of groups trying to advocate for things like teaching about the existence of Sikhism in uh, high school textbooks, and, you know, which, which of course brings us to another one of the reasons why people might not know about six education and things like that. But yeah, I mean, it's hard for any small immigrant community to make themselves known in a way. One of the few things I remember reading about the group is when I was in the army, I think it was like 2007 or something like that, the army allowed the Sikh turban to be part of standard army uniform. And that was like a major change of policy as far as the army uniform went. Right. Yeah. That, that was a, a very significant point in Sikh community outreach and advocacy, like from the perspective of our own community, it was, it was just like a sort of a large victory in integration into society and things like that. I mean, because there's this delicate balance on one hand, Sikhs want to be integrated into society, but on the other hand, you know, we have very prominent articles of faith that do 
require things like exceptions or reformulations to rules banning religious garb in certain contexts and, and, and things like that. So, so that's always been something that I think the community has struggled with in terms of fitting in in a country like the U.S. And, and so that was seen as a big win for the community, I think. So I wanted to ask you both about growing up as a Sikh and also the tenets of the faith, but I don't know which would be best to talk about first. I mean, maybe it's a more natural segue to talk about growing up since, you know, you were just kind of talking about the, the things about the community being invisible and sort of why don't people know who six are and stuff like that. Uh, the reason I think it's a natural segue is because that was something that loomed really large for me growing up, you know, as a sick kid in, in the U.S. And it was interesting because I grew up in Northern California, which is where certainly a plurality of six in the u.s live if not a majority i think i'm not sure of the exact numbers off the top of my head i think there are about five hundred thousand six in the u.s right now which is a sizable but still a tiny percentage of the whole country and i think about two hundred thousand of them uh live in northern california but despite this because california is also highly populated it was still a you know a tiny minority um, growing up and, and most people didn't know what I was. And that was a pretty important part of my experience growing up, you know, constantly sort of having to explain like what the deal was with the way I looked when you're a kid and you wear a turban, you get other kids who, you know, they don't have the social inhibitions. They just go right up to you. Hey, what's that thing on your head? You just have to get used to answering that question. So that's a kind of, I guess. It's not a normal experience for a kid growing up. And to, to sort of feel like you have to be a cultural ambassador from the age of five years old or something like that. Um, maybe some other communities have experienced that. But I think uh, six growing up in the U.S. experienced that particularly acutely because of our distinctive appearance. The other thing I'll, I'll, I'll mention is that, uh, you know, I grew up partly in, uh, you know, the, the aftermath of 9-11. But that was also a really defining moment for a, a lot of six because a lot of the sort of phobic backlash to 9-11 actually fell on six, given that we're often misperceived as Muslims because of this kind of largely erroneous association between the turban and, and Islam. And, you know, that's probably something that contributes to the invisibility of six as well, because if people see turban and Muslim, then they're not even going to realize that there is some separate community that they don't know about, right? You can't, you can't ask about what is your religion? What community are you part of? If you don't even know that this person isn't part of a, a religion you think you already know about, but, but the, the post nine 11 era was really hard for a lot of sick kids because it really increased bullying. It increased hate crimes and, and um, just a lot of really violent behavior towards six for a while. It's gotten a bit better since then, but that was, you know, for, for millennial sick Americans, I think that was a really defining experience of like the teenage years and, and that period. Do you think that the experience of having to uphold the reputation of a community was beneficial to you, like in your development? Yeah, I actually do. I mean, it was. 
definitely hard at times. And I, you know, I can't claim that I never as a kid felt like, oh, I wish I could just, you know, blend in and just be a normal kid. But it's really part of the sort of sick self-conception. That's not what we do. You know, it's kind of our job to uphold these things and not just to uphold them to sort of protect ourselves as a community, but, but really because there are these ideals that we're supposed to be upholding. And that's why, you know, we wear these articles of faith, you know, it's not just, oh, I'm part of this group. So I wear these and, you know, we can get into the significance of this more, but you know, the articles of faith are really supposed to represent certain ethical commitments. And so for six, it's really like, no, you, you, you shouldn't shy away from being someone who tells the world like, Hey, this is what I stand for. And I want everyone to hold me to that. I want everyone to know that I'm a person, you know, with these commitments. How old were you when you first began wearing the turban? I assume there's a, there's a certain age at which it's appropriate. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a sort of children's version of it, which is smaller and easier to tie that kids usually wear. And I think I started wearing that when I was probably about four years old. And then the full turban is usually something that one starts wearing maybe at about 13 or 14. There's a, you know, a bit of a coming of age ceremony around it. You know, not entirely dissimilar to like a Jewish bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. And, you know, that's when you really sort of take on the commitments, I guess, fully, you know, as you're sort of coming into adulthood and a more mature understanding of what they are. I would imagine that that's another positive feature of the culture because American culture broadly lacks any clear transition into adulthood. I think that's actually a big problem. Um, mm, yeah, that's an interesting observation. It's, it certainly helped me stay grounded, I would say. I mean, a lot of my friends, um, I think, felt this sense of aimlessness when they were teenagers. I mean, not complete aimlessness, but just sort of like trying to figure out, you know, what meaning is there actually in my life? And, you know, for, for a lot of American teenagers, I think what that leads to is a lot of just sort of like experimentation with different things, which is not necessarily a bad thing in every way. But for me, I, I guess I, I felt, you know, interested in those sorts of questions, but I didn't feel perhaps as much angst um, and need to sort of go out and, you know, experience every pleasure of the world to try to find some solace because of what I already had. Tradition is a sort of a barrier against anomie and some of the problems of the modern world. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, tradition is complicated. It can be so, so valuable at such a source of meaning. It can also be, you know, very problematic um, because it can you know, reinforce all these bad things. It, it sort of depends on the content of the tradition. But I will say that for me, it was largely a positive force. So if you were, say, 12 or 13, and some kid says, what's that thing on your head? What was like your standard response? Yeah, so 
um, you know, I would tell them, well, this is a turban. It's part of my religion. It's an article of faith. And I would say, you know, it uh, represents the the ideals or the ethics of of my religion. And, you know, then I would probably have given them, you know, a somewhat less sophisticated explanation back then than I would give now about, you know, how the turban in the cultural context in which Sikhism developed as a religion was essentially a crown. It was a sign of royalty and rulership for men. And the adoption of the turban as something that everyone wore was in part a symbol of quality and egalitarianism, sort of to communicate that, you know, we're, we're all, you know, sort of on the same level. There are no, you know, we're all rulers and, and none of us are rulers. There sort of is no real hierarchy when you get down to it, you know, when you think about moral reality. Um, so that's one of the big things that the turban in cultural context symbolized. Of course, you know, the complication, you know, when you're part of a diaspora is that that's not going to be a widely known meaning. So, so in a way you get this sort of failure for it to communicate what it's supposed to. And, and that's something that has to be addressed by telling people like, no, this is, this is what it's supposed to be communicating. It really is supposed to be a symbol of my commitment to equality and egalitarianism. Is there a female counterpart to the turban? Yeah, so that's it's a bit of a complicated issue. So actually, there are a, a fair number of sick women who do wear turbans. It's less common. And the reason that it sort of developed more commonly as an expression, you know, of, of one's commitments for men is because of this sort of culturally contingent thing that, you know, this was the crown and it was trying to, in a way sort of disrupt a certain kind of significance that the turban already had. And of course, there was no corresponding thing for women. And, and women, of course, in that cultural context, were also rarely rulers. Um, so that kind of complicated the whole cultural story. I mean, th there is, of course, the other aspect of the turban that involves covering one's head as a sign of respect, especially in uh, the context of like a religious service. And that's something that, you know, everyone does regardless of gender. But there's kind of an interesting, I don't want to say debate about this, but a discussion about this within the community where some, you know, women say, well, you know, Sikhism is a religion that is committed to gender equality. So women should wear turbans too, because, you know, we should not be exempt from communicating the very same things that men do. On the other hand, you have this sort of roadblock, which is that, that original significance was really related to, you know, something that only men wore. So, you know, especially given the mo that most of the Sikhs in the world still live, you know, in Punjab, the region where Sikhism was established, it sort of, I think, is something that a lot of women would see as, you know, maybe just a bit odd for them to wear. But actually in the diaspora, I would say it's more common because there's more of these sort of discussions of like, well, you know, we shouldn't be shackled by that original cultural context. And if this is symbolizing a commitment, then, then that's something we should all do. So it's very interesting to, to sort of see this discussion going on within the community. All right, thanks. I think it's useful to have that cultural background. Most listeners are not going to know any of this stuff. 
I didn't know any of this. I guess I want to ask you now about the history and the tenets of the faith, if you could say a bit about those things. Yeah, definitely. So like I said earlier, Sikh means student or, or disciple, and it was basically a name that came to refer to originally the devotees of a series of gurus or, or spiritual masters who, who lived over the course of a few centuries. There were 10 of them. So the first Guru Nanak Dev Ji uh, lived in the 15th and, and 16th centuries, born in 1469. And so then these, these 10 gurus, you know, they had disciples, they had devotees, they developed scripture and doctrine, and they wrote pages upon pages of verse um, that, that became the sort of Sikh holy book, uh, which is called uh, Sri Guru Granth Sahib Ji. Um, you'll notice that that's the, the term guru also appears in, in the name of the scripture. And so the idea sort of after these 10 living gurus who figured it all out, basically, who figured out the doctrine, who wrote the scripture, that the scripture became the guru, that became the source of knowledge, of, of enlightenment. So this scripture, it's got over 1400 pages of verse. Interestingly, it includes verses written by the Sikh gurus, but it also contains sort of like curated verses from other reformers, some of whom even preceded the Sikh gurus. Some of them were Hindu or, or, or Muslim sort of religious reformers whose message was seen as sort of fitting with what the Sikh gurus were trying to get at. Um, so you have a kind of interesting, you know, gradual development and codification of Sikhism as a separate religion throughout this period. And a lot of what that consisted in was a kind of reformism, a kind of being dissatisfied with a lot of the religious practices um, of the time and place. And so here we're talking about the Punjab region, you know, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries when this was happening. And there were a lot of practices that the Sikh gurus were really uh, critical of, like, for example, the caste system, probably the biggest one that they were critical of, the, the biggest thing that they saw as a sort of social ill, but a variety of other practices um, that they saw as inegalitarian, as enforcing hierarchies that don't correspond to any real moral hierarchies in the world. So, you know, other examples would be, you know, the idea that uh, you need to get spiritual knowledge or enlightenment from, you know, some special figure and you can't figure it out yourself. So even though the gurus were, were sort of seen as spiritual masters, they, they also thought that this spiritual knowledge was sort of in principle available to everyone through, uh, you know, introspection and practice. And they also opposed a, a variety of cultural practices that are, you know, now pretty much universally seen as really bad, like the practice of widows throwing themselves on the funeral pyre, which uh, was really common back then. It was sort of considered their duty. And, and now we look at that and we think, like, that's horrible. But at the time, it was, it was a kind of radical, progressive stance to take to say this should not happen. 
this is, you know, this is in, in, incompatible with seeing women as full human beings and not just extensions of men. One question I have here about the origin of the religion. So this, this would have been in a context where the major religions were Islam and Hinduism, and maybe there were some Buddhists around at the time. I don't know, but, uh, there were these gurus who came up with this, this new doctrine. Were they claiming to have had some special interaction with divinity like Muhammad claimed to have had or Joseph Smith claimed to have had where there was there was this moment where down comes the new doctrine? Or was it just a matter of organically thinking and it was through rationality and reflecting on other things that were supposed to have been divine sources that this came about? Good. I think it was somewhere in between the two. So what it isn't is sort of like, well, God spoke to me and, and delivered me this message, and now I'm going to deliver it to you because I'm chosen to do so. It wasn't that. Though there was an aspect of a kind of divine inspiration or a kind of getting in touch with some feature of ultimate reality that people had maybe to a large degree been blocked from getting in touch with before, not because they weren't chosen or they weren't special, but rather because certain ways, certain social norms and, and certain cultural practices being reinforced was actually the thing that they thought prevents us from getting in touch with ultimate reality. This, this is kind of a, an illusion, a way of, of blinding us to the way things really are. And so I guess I would say what the Sikh gurus thought about themselves is, you know, we've thought long and hard about this and we've meditated and we've introspected and we've, we've engaged in these kind of transcendental practices of singing hymns and doing things that, that might get you in touch with that ultimate reality. And we figured some things out. They didn't think that nobody had figured any of that stuff out before. And that's, in fact, why they included those verses from those Hindu and Muslim reformers. Because they basically picked things out that they thought, okay, yeah, they were sort of in maybe some slightly incomplete way getting at these same things. So the Guru thought anyone can access this ultimate reality in principle, but there are all these roadblocks. And so they thought like, well, there are certain ways of overcoming those roadblocks. And that's kind of what they dedicated their lives to. Is the canon in principle, open or is it closed? Like if it's just a number of, of gurus thinking about stuff and getting inspiration of a kind that ordinary people have access to, then it seems like that would create some pressure towards an open canon. Right. So the way six usually see it is what counts as scripture is closed because it is essentially a, a, a complete presentation of the kind of doctrine you need to follow and what you need to do to get in touch with ultimate reality. Not that there's sort of like a set of rules you can follow, but it's sort of seen as this is essentially a transcription of, of a complete set of thoughts and guidance about spiritual enlightenment. Now, there's a lot of openness to, you know, interpretation and secondary literature. And there's a, a large tradition of uh, what six call uh, katha, which is, I guess it translates sort of as like discourse. So it's, you know, this large tradition of 
going through, you know, how do we make all of this coherent? How do we interpret it as a systematic worldview? There's a lot of openness to that, kind of not entirely dissimilar to like the rabbinical tradition of interpreting the Torah, at least as, as I understand it, not being Jewish myself, where it's like, okay, well, we've got the scripture that's closed, but there's a lot of work to do figuring out exactly how this formulates a complete and coherent worldview. All right. So I'm going to move on to ask some more detailed questions about the doctrine. So I know Sikhism is monotheistic in a sense, but I'm not sure whether or not you would say it has the same sort of distinction between creator and created that exists in the Abrahamic traditions. Good. Yes. That is a really important question. Yeah. So Sikhism is often described as monotheistic, though I do think that can be a bit misleading if it leads people to think that the nature of the divine in Sikhism is similar to the Abrahamic tradition. Part of why I think that is I think the idea of God is kind of something that's a little bit of a superimposition when it applied to Sikhism because it sort of suggests this discrete being, perhaps a personal God, that I, I think, at least as I interpret it, is not really the ultimate nature of the divine, according to Sikh philosophy and theology. So in that way, I think it differs from the Abrahamic tradition. There are verses that talk about a personified God in sort of metaphorical terms, but I think ultimately there's a pretty strong commitment in core verses of scripture to the idea that the divine is ultimately this kind of all-encompassing oneness. And so that what we might call the fundamental level of reality, there really is no separation between us and the divine. In fact, what enlightenment is, in a nutshell, according to Sikhism, is sort of an attempt to, or the attempt to achieve enlightenment, I'll say, is, is the attempt to connect with the divine, to connect with that ultimate oneness, that fundamental level of reality, and in some way sort of transcend the world that we are sort of embodied in and, and, and that we're ordinarily conscious in. And once we've done that, there's really no real distinction between us and the divine that we've come to know. So at, the, at risk of imposing another imposition, Spinoza's God, similar to that? I think there are some similarities. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's not exactly the same, but I think some kind of lonism is at least how I understand the metaphysical commitments of, of the sick conception of the divine. It's interesting because it's, it's not like a, a form of idealism where this world is not really real. It's a complete illusion. And the only real thing is this oneness. There is a kind of reality to this world, but it's sort of seen as shallow. And so the illusion is interpreted as the illusion that this is all there is. 
And so something to be transcended and, and to sort of get into contact with that ultimate reality, which is, I think, properly interpreted as, as monistic. And this will come up too when we get into the ethics, because it wounds are really central part of the foundations of ethics in Sikhism. There's this kind of interesting connection between the metaphysics and the ethics there. It's more like Plato than Parmenides, where Parmenides, all difference is just complete illusion. Whereas with Plato, you've got like degrees of reality going up to the form of the good, which is the ultimate reality. Yeah, I think there's definitely something in common there. I would say, you know, it's not exactly like Plato, but yeah, more like Plato than Parmenides. I mean, one term that I used in the paper that I recently published about sick ethics, just when I was sort of framing the metaphysics at the beginning, is, you know, it was suggested to me by some, some philosophers of religion that maybe this idea of priority monism, where it's like, you're not saying that there's only one thing that exists full stop, but you're saying that there's only one thing that exists at the fundamental level would be sort of like a good way of conceptualizing sick metaphysics. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's sort of a fair characterization. This raises the question of how evil and dissonance uh, and all that sort of stuff gets into the world. I'm wondering what the story is there. Good. Yeah. So as I understand it, the source of evil is this weird feature of us, which is that, you know, we are part of the ultimate reality, but we're also by our nature primarily conscious of this non-fundamental reality, the world we live in. And in that world, in the, you know, in the world that we're speaking in right now, there are discrete consciousnesses. There is a very strong sense of we're not all the same. There's a separation. There are my desires that matter especially to me. And there is all of that sort of subjectivity. And what that creates the fact that we live in this this world of, of separation is this sense of self-importance, the sense of importance apart from everyone else, not grounded in, in some, you know, transcendent, unified importance. But no, I'm, I'm important because I'm me and I'm special. This sense is, you know, it's a fact of human psychology, right? And so in a way, our embodiedness, our consciousness as discrete human beings is, is somewhat tragic because it's what creates evil. The central vice, according to Sikh ethics, is what's called Hame, which doesn't have a perfect translation to like a single word in English, but, but I think it basically refers to this sense of importance apart from others, importance that is sort of normatively sui generis, you know, it's its own thing. It's not related to the importance of others. And then taken to an extreme, it's a kind of like moral solipsism. It's like, everything is about me. Nobody else matters. I'm the subject in a world of objects and I can do whatever I want to satisfy my desires. So basically that impulse, which comes out of just the way we are, you know, our nature in this world is basically the source of all evil, according to Sikhism. And would that include like natural evil or, or is that in the picture? Good. Yeah. So I think that doesn't include natural evil. I don't think natural evil is actually evil, like in a normative sense on the Sikh perspective. 
there's human evil that comes out of our own sense of sort of individuation. And aside from that, you know, what we would call natural evil, you know, bad things happening, there's not really a moralized sense of that in Sikhism. It's just sort of part of the way things are. And I think it would seem perhaps unnatural to call it a form of evil to six. I mean, it would make sense to think of it as bad and sad and regrettable, but not really as a form of evil. And I think part of the explanation of that is if you don't have a personal God and you don't have this sort of conception of an agent, an all-powerful agent pulling the strings, then I think it sort of makes less sense to have a moralized conception of things that happen in the natural world that aren't a result of human agency. You know, maybe you could call climate change evil, but but, but that would be seen as a human evil insofar it was br brought about by human agency. Something like, just like a natural disaster that has no connection to human agency. I have the sense that that only makes sense to conceive of as evil if you think there's, you know, this benevolent and all-powerful agent and you want to ask like why is this happening right yeah like rose suffering bambi in the forest or something like that due to a natural fire there are philosophers in the christian context who are anxious about how to reconcile that with the big three oh god uh, right right yeah and i mean you know the problem of evil is generally uh a pretty tough problem to tackle. And I guess I would say the way Sikhism, at least how I interpret it, sidesteps the problem of evil is just by not thinking of the divine as a personal agent when it comes down to it. I mean, there are, you know, maybe metaphorical ways that you might describe the divine as personified, but ultimately the core verses say that the divine is without form, and there's a variety of talking about all of the kinds of features that a personal agent has that the divine does not have. So I think it's very clear, ultimately, that this is not the conception of the divine in Sikhism. And that's why I'm loath to even use the word God. So then if you don't have God in that sense, then you, you don't have this question about, you know, why would God allow this? And, and that's another way in which I think it potentially can be misleading to talk about Sikhism as monotheistic, because it might make us think that the ethics is sort of more on the model of the Abrahamic tradition, whereas I think it diverges significantly in that regard. So maybe it would be no less of an imposition, but maybe no more of an imposition to, to think of the divine as something like the Tao, something like this, this force that, it, that is not personified, that people connect with sort of runs through everything. Yeah, I think that's a good comparison to draw. Again, I, you know, it's not going to be exactly the same. And of course, I don't have a sophisticated enough understanding of Taoism to comment on the details. But I do think, based on my understanding of the various quote-unquote Eastern traditions, that this idea of the divine as this kind of oneness behind everything that we don't see or connect with because of the way in which we're sort of situated in this 
world at this level of reality, I do feel like there are common threads running through those traditions that sort of key into that idea in some way or another. And uh, Sikhism definitely keys heavily into it. It's a big part of the metaphysics, and it's also a big part of the ethics. I would call it an ethic of oneness, ultimately, which I'm, I'm happy to talk more about. So the idea that selfishness is the ultimate enemy of morality is a familiar one. Yeah. I guess I'm a, a little bit resistant to the idea that it is the root of all evil. Mm. Because I, I think a pretty strong case can be made that empathy sometimes leads people seriously astray. And I've written about moral zealotry being a problem where extreme devotion to a cause isn't just a front for selfish impulses, but it is a kind of blind concern for some particular good at the exclusion of others. So I wonder if those sorts of things can be encompassed by this sense of duality. Because you could say, it still is a kind of duality. You still are obsessed with a particular thing, even if that thing isn't yourself. Yeah. I mean, so the way that getting in touch with ultimate reality, that having a sense of oneness is supposed to manifest for six is a kind of concern for at least all of humanity, you know, maybe broader than that, but we'll say at least all of humanity and a kind of equal concern. Um, so I, I don't think the idea is like the one thing at the bottom, the divine, the thing that's fundamental is the object of ethical concern. And we're all sort of like zealously devoted to somehow working for the interests of that thing. It's more like morality arises out of the fact that we are all manifestations of this thing. So the proper object of concern is going to be like each individual other person, even though that fact is going to be grounded in this fact of oneness. And so, you know, I don't think it's going to get some of these really bad things or, you know, things I think of as bad, you know, maybe hardcore utilitarians wouldn't think of them as bad, but, you know, some of these sort of like, I'll do anything for the greater good kinds of moral judgments that we find, many of us find disturbing. I think it's not going to get you that. I think it's very interesting because on one hand, the separateness of persons understood metaphysically is an illusion or at least the idea that that's fundamental is an illusion. But there's another way in which that the recognition of that gets you separateness of persons in the ethical sense that we're familiar with in Western moral philosophy. So I think you can, you know, I haven't fully worked this out, but I think you can get things like rights out of this picture if you sort of think it through. And I mean, I'm not, tell me if I'm not sort of getting to the heart of your concern but my sense is that's why this ethic of oneness doesn't get you, ah, yes, like I'll sacrifice this innocent child for the good of the whole or something like that, which, which I, you know, I share the common intuition that that's not the right moral verdict there. Now, my concern was just that I think there are multiple seeds of evil, whereas you want to not unify. Yeah. Yeah. So not that. 
anything about the belief system would give rise to this. Just that I think as a, as a matter of psychological fact about humans, selfishness is maybe the most common root of evil, but I just think that there are others. Yeah. So I guess it would be helpful for me, like as a sort of challenge to try to think about how the sick ethical perspective would take some putative example of an evil that bottoms out in something other than this idea of home, this sense of separation, and to look at that and say, well, can we unify this with our overall picture? So if you have like examples in mind, cases of evil, where you think the best explanation of the wrongness is something other than that, I could try to think about how does that do as sort of like a stress test for this way of thinking about morality. Yeah, so the cases I would have in mind would be like pathological altruism and moral extremism. I don't want to like toot my own horn or whatever with my paper, but I give examples where it looks like you can interpret the evidence a different way, but it looks like people are genuinely devoted to destroying some kind of evil. And it isn't just a kind of selfishness that they have projected, or it isn't just virtue signaling or something like that. Like they're really seriously devoted to eliminating some perceived evil, but they're doing great harm and they can't see it. I give the example of the anti-alcohol extremists in the U.S. who were destroying bars and actually having the government poison alcohol, industrial alcohol during prohibition to make sure no one was drinking it, killing 10,000 people in the process. They thought they were doing the right thing. And of course, you can always give a story that ultimately selfishness explains any of the examples I give, but I think it's not always the the most plausible. Another example of pathological empathy would be the entire nation is obsessing about some kid who fell in a well and, and is she okay when there are like all these other problems, but we can only see the one thing. That doesn't seem like selfishness, but it does seem like a bad thing. I see. Yeah. Good. I mean, so actually, I think the first example you gave is kind of related to the question about what kind of moral theory does this give rise to? Because, I mean, that case, you know, the alcohol poisoning case really does seem to have the structure of like, I'm willing to cause a lot of harm to people intentionally, like for the greater good. And I think some of the machinery of like, okay, so why is it not compatible with seeing everyone as equal, truly seeing everyone as like equal manifestations of the divine to sort of treat them as exchangeable and fungible in this way. So I think that actually can maybe do some of the work there. Um, But there's still this part of your question, which is like, well, but they're at least if they're making a mistake, the mistake they're making is not that they're being selfish. That's kind of your point. So I think actually, if we took like a fully sick ethical perspective on this, we might want to resist that claim because I think in sick scripture, there's a lot of evidence that like certain errors of rationality are themselves rooted in a kind of self-indulgence. So there's something that we might call like self-indulgent reasoning that I think moral fanatics are very prone to engage in. And fanaticism in general, I think, is really going to be incompatible 
with the Sikh ethical perspective, because one of the main ways that Sikh scripture says Home manifests, one of the five vices that come from this master vice of Home is arrogance. I think there's an argument to be made that there's a certain kind of arrogance that's manifested in moral fanaticism. What I would want to say from from the Sikh ethical perspective is it's perhaps not possible for one to have the kind of moral motivation that there is in, in say, the alcohol poisoning example without being arrogant, without thinking that you're better than others. And if you think that you're better than others to the point where you know so much better than them that you know that it would be okay to harm and even kill them for this greater good that you're sure is going to be brought about by your actions, then I would say it's not selfishness in the sort of narrow way we construe it, but it is home in the way that six understand it. And I, and I think home is kind of a richer concept than the narrow concept of selfishness. And maybe this is a way to bring that out. Yeah, that's a really good response. I agree. There's a kind of arrogance. There's a kind of epistemic failing. And it's easy to connect that with arrogance. And I think we probably agree that there is a very strong connection between epistemic and moral well-functioning. Yeah. So I think that sort of independently, just as a matter of my you know philosophical orientation, but one of the things I've sort of discovered when I've been doing sick philosophy uh, recently is that's a really, really strong commitment of the sick philosophical perspective on things. You know, there's a sort of a very important line in Sikh scripture that says, you know, truth is above all else, but higher still is truthful living. And so actually, one of the ways of describing what it is to live well is to live truthfully. And this sort of makes sense if you think of acting morally as sort of a way of recognizing through your action the way things really are, that, you know, goodness and truth are essentially the same thing. They come down to the same thing. And so if you make epistemic errors, especially in the realm of, you know, interpersonal interactions, those are kind of always going to be moral errors from the sick perspective, because you're always going to be failing to see things for what they really are. I was thinking as I read your article that this wasn't something that you said explicitly, but maybe, maybe you might pursue this in another article. It's that I could see a similarity between this and Socrates' view that evil is ignorance, since so much of the ethics is about dispelling ignorance and illusion and perceiving reality as it is. I'm wondering how far you could take that kind of perspective. Yeah, good. So I think it's absolutely right to say that evil is ignorance from a sick perspective. I think the exact machinery is going to be different from how it is for Socrates. But I think the general idea is very similar. You know, the, what it is we're failing to see when, when we act evilly, I think the story might be different there. But, but yeah, evil absolutely is ignorance. It's ignorance of ultimate reality for six. And e even that, you know, you might say is, is true for Socrates. 
uh, that it's ignorance of ultimate reality, but you know, there might be a different story about what ultimate reality is. So, so I'm not sure exactly how far it can be taken, but I think this idea that like, you're always getting something factual wrong about the world when you act wrongly is a kind of common thread there that, that would be interesting to think more about. Yeah. This also, I think, has the, the seeds of a, of a further response to the moral extremism, zealotry counterexample, because the extremist is focused on a particular evil, but isn't mm. seeing his or her other obligations and all the other evils that need to be taken into consideration. Good. Good. Yes. And I think that could do a good job of capturing some of the other cases that you mentioned, like the cases where people focus really narrowly on one bad thing that's happening and, you know, ignore other things. I mean, that really seems to be self-indulgent in a way, because you're sort of ignoring some things because one thing, you know, emotionally resonates with you in a particular way. And there's a kind of attachment, a kind of emotional attachment that's also seen as a vice in Sikhism. And, and that might factor in here too, where it's kind of like, well, this thing matters more because I connect to it more. And so I'm going to ignore all this other stuff that's happening. Well, that doesn't seem to be compatible with recognizing an ultimate reality that entails, you know, equal significance of all people, because you're essentially denying that or sort of blind that in your actions. So I had this further thought, this further way of challenging this ethical perspective. If the metaphysical oneness is the ground of ethics, somebody could say, okay, well, then this isn't really self-transcendence then if we're all, if we're all one, right? Real transcendence would be caring about something that's other. But ultimately, huh. since we're all connected, you're just caring about yourself. There's no even possibility of real self-transcendence on this perspective. Yeah, it's true that there ultimately is no other. I would still say you're not ultimately caring only about yourself. You're caring about something bigger than yourself that you're a part of. You know, there, I, I do think there's this, some kind of like part whole relation here such that it's still accurate to say you're caring about something bigger than yourself. And ultimately... That is kind of the perspective. The perspective is like, is not self-negation or something like that. And, and that's why we don't get a very positive view on things like asceticism and Sikhism. So it's not sort of like negate yourself, transcend yourself so that you don't really exist anymore or something like that. It's more like, you know, we've got these blinders on that have us take a very narrow perspective on reality. And, and from that narrow perspective, we see ourselves as discrete, as having these boundaries that are not just metaphysical, but normative. And so it's about sort of seeing beyond that, but that doesn't mean that you don't have any significance anymore. Like you do just the same way everyone else does. And that's why it sort of makes sense to still live a somewhat normal life in certain regards, as opposed to being this sort of saintly figure, this transcendent figure. That's not actually really what the, the moral exemplar looks like for six, interestingly. So would I still have grounds for seeing 
other people as different from me in a different way than my future self is different from me. Because it seems like like long-term self-interest is still self-interest. And if I'm caring about my future self, then there's no self-transcendence there. There is maybe some prudence there. So if I'm related to other people in a similar kind of way, metaphysically, it would still seem like, yeah, like that limits the degree of self-transcendence. Yeah. So, so I think we're not supposed to care about other people in exactly the same way that we care about our future selves. And so it's not supposed to be exactly symmetric. And the reason for that is because I recognize my future self as this narrow self, part of the same narrow self that my current self is part of, it doesn't allow me to enact this oneness to care about my future self. So the the interesting thing about six spiritual practice is it's said that contemplation, meditation, uh, singing of hymns, things like that are all really important for connecting with ultimate reality, but so is doing good deeds and you can't do it without those good deeds. So I think the idea is supposed to be that you have to go out into the world and treat the apparent other, or they really are the other at this level of reality, as you would treat yourself in a way. And only then can you fully connect with this oneness. So so it involves a kind of practice. And I don't think that that would work by caring about or doing things for your future self, because that would be fully compatible with the kind of self-indulgence that's rejected. So this, uh, this has something to say about evil is ignorance. So, so knowledge, I guess, must be good. And so then there's a question of how we go about acquiring it. And it sounds like it isn't going to be intellectualist in the like analytic philosophy kind of way. You're going to have to go out and do good deeds and do spiritual practices and make yourself the kind of person who's capable of perceiving certain kinds of truths. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's plenty of room for, you know, intellectual knowledge, but it can't be the whole story when it comes to gaining spiritual enlightenment, which would be required for full metaphysical and ethical understanding. The intellectual stuff's going to be part of the picture, but it's going to need to be complemented by various forms of practice. We might see as like a kind of attunement. There are several lines in Sixth Scripture that say you got to go out and do these things. The ascetic who goes off and lives in the mountains and 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 just thinks about things is kind of practicing their own form of self indulgence. Uh, there are several connections we could have made along the way here with like Stoicism, the idea of, of non attachment. But I'm guessing you'd say with Stoicism, there might be some kind of, is, is there kind of a, like a, a self-indulgence with focusing on one's own non-attachment to things or something like that? I think there might be taken to a, a, a certain degree. And so I think there's a really delicate balance from the Sikh perspective between attachment and non-attachment and you know that comes out in certain verses that say you know don't be an ascetic be a householder you know have a family things like that and i think it comes from the fact that whatever 
the truth is about the ultimate reality, we're still living in this world. We're still embodied and conscious in this world. And so we can't fully reject that. We have to sort of live with the tension and that has to manifest itself through some kind of proper recognition of, you know, the right level of attachment to the things in this world. They're real and some amount of attachment to them is appropriate, but any amount of attachment that, you know, verges on sort of, uh, preventing one from seeing that this world is not the ultimate reality, I think is going to be what's problematic. So it's not no attachment. And it's also not, you know, probably the level of attachment that, that most people actually have somewhere in between that's going to be seen as virtuous. Hold on loosely to the contingent things that aren't that important. Yeah. I mean, they are important. But their importance is derivative, I guess, is what I'd say. So they are genuinely quite important, especially like other people, like the people in your life. They are genuinely very important. But there is a sense in which their importance is derivative. But our connection to to that sense, to that ultimate reality, because of our nature, is fleeting. It's It's very, very hard to stay connected to it. You can stay connected to it by, you know, these kinds of practice and thinking and philosophizing, but it's always going to be sort of something that you're drifting away from just because of how we are constituted. Are there any like moral guidelines or practices or positions that would be distinctive to this sick perspective? Yeah, well, I think more was distinctive in a general sense, at the time that Sikhism was founded, because it was so progressive for the time, and it was really radically egalitarian, you know, rejected all forms of caste system, all forms of gender inequality, all forms of racism. Um, and that was, at the time, quite progressive. I mean, you might say that, you know, it's still something that we're working hard on now, but it, there's at least much more of a, you know, idea out there that like, yeah, any realistic moral theory or moral system is going to reject these things. I don't think that was the case back then. So, so it was more radical then than it is now, but I think it's still radical in a way now because if one really takes this ethic of oneness seriously, one has to be really quite committed to things like, you know, service for one thing. Like there's this idea of seva or selfless service in Sikhism. So that's why you always see like in the news, you know, when Sikhs show up in the news, it's always like, oh, they're going and like feeding people and, you know, anyone can come to uh, the Sikh gurdwaras or temples and, you know, get free food and things like that. So th those are supposed to be ways of really kind of putting your money where your mouth is in terms of egalitarianism in ways that like, I think are parts of other religious traditions, but maybe are not so specifically emphasizes like, no, this is the core of what you're doing. Like this, this is how you achieve spiritual enlightenment is you go out and you do things for other people and you be willing to sacrifice pretty significantly. So you have to like give your life to save others or things like that. That's looked on very, very favorably. And again, that's not totally distinct from other religious traditions. I just think that there's, 
there's more of an emphasis on it in virtue of connecting it really tightly to these sort of fundamental metaphysical and ethical truths. It's not just like, oh yeah, here's like some guidance we add on. No, this is, this is what comes out of the core of the picture. So you drew connections between this ethic and Aristotelian virtue ethics and also with Kantianism. Right. And you seem, I guess, reluctant to seek connections with like utilitarianism, but I can see how somebody could develop it in that way, but you just don't want to. Yeah, right. So, I mean, the main connection I drew with Aristotelian virtue ethics is I think there's like sort of a similar picture of the structure of virtue in terms of something that you have to practice in order to acquire it. You know, you can't just like think about it really hard and become virtuous. You got to go out and and do it. The connection with Kantianism, yeah, I mean, it's you're you're right that one might look at this whole thing about oneness, and you might be like, okay, yeah, so like, why not utilitarianism? You know, maximize aggregate well being because everyone's the same. And instead, I say, you know, no, it's it's similar to Kantianism. I mean, I probably keyed in on that partly because I'm much more sympathetic to Kantian ethics, you know, independently of this engagement with Sikh philosophy. But I also, I guess I sort of saw interesting parallels between the categorical imperative, especially this kind of like idea that there's a kind of inconsistency in according a certain normative significance to myself, but not others manifests in a certain way. I saw certain parallels between that and how an ethics, an ethic of oneness might work. And I think ultimately what I'm thinking about why it would look more, I don't think it will necessarily look exactly like a Kantian picture, but why it would look more like that than a utilitarian picture is something about this fact that this level of reality is not wholly illusory. It is real and we do live in it and we can't fully escape it. And so I think that sort of interplay between the level of reality in which we're distinct and the one in which we're not is going to generate some kind of picture where, you know, we have to, I mean, to put it in Kantian terms, recognize humanity in each person. And so that's going to generate a kind of non-fungibility, I think, that's going to get us rights and, and other things that utilitarians don't usually make room for in their theories. That's really interesting. Well, I think those are all the questions I had for you. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? Not that I can think of. I mean, you, yeah, you touched on a lot of stuff. I'm glad we got to, to talk about some of the sociological and cultural things, but also, you know, a lot of philosophy, which of course we both enjoy talking about. Thanks for uh, being interested in this. You're the, you're the first person to invite me on a podcast to talk about stick philosophy. So you always. Have- oh, but I saw another, I saw another podcast with you. It was the closer to truth one. Oh yeah. I guess, I guess I wasn't thinking of that as a podcast, but yeah, it was like a sort of like public philosophy interview thing. I get the impression that not very many philosophers saw that. Hopefully many philosophers will, will listen to this because I think it was a, it was To me, it seemed like a very fruitful discussion. I hope it seemed fruitful to you. Certainly it did. Yeah. And I look forward to seeing you develop this. 
I have been critical of the obsession over diversity, so-called, because I think a lot of it is shallow. But I thought, like, if philosophers really want to take this idea seriously, we should be looking at more comparative philosophy. We should be looking at other traditions. And so I wish there was a greater interest in that and more pressure for people to connect with other philosophical traditions, because that seems like a really fruitful kind of diversity to me. Yeah, I agree with you that that's really fruitful. And I, I do think that people who are truly committed to diversity should want to make sure that our ideas are parochial. Just from the perspective of getting at the truth, we should want to not ignore anything that we have evidence could be a valuable perspective. So I completely agree. And, and I do have the sense that more comparative philosophy, more engagement with non-Western philosophy is happening. But I do think that it's happening more slowly than it would be if people were as committed to diversity as they say they are. I, I do think a true commitment to that has to mean that you go look for the, the traditions that no one's paying attention to that have been marginalized. That might be right under your nose, right? Like if you know, you knew me, a philosopher, and you knew that I was sick, and then and then you saw that I was working a bit on sick philosophy. And so you said, okay, let's talk about this. I think like that kind of thing is what has to happen more to, to sort of center those things. Part of the reason, in fact, I even say the main reason I think the main thing to be said in favor of diversity is that we can't check each other's blind spots if we're all the same, you know? Right. And another thing that is worth pointing out is when you see different traditions coming to to similar conclusions independently, it can give you a greater kind of confidence, I think, in those conclusions. Good, good. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think as somebody who is in many ways, a minority in philosophy. I think about diversity a lot. And of course, I think like two different kinds of justification for diversity are often conflated. One is like, you know, a kind of distributive justice thing about correcting for historical injustices and making sure that everyone has a fair shot. And then there's this other thing that often gets overshadowed by that, which is like, if you want to get at the truth, you need this multitude of perspectives, exactly how you put it, to check each other's blind spots. And I completely agree that convergence between traditions, especially traditions that didn't interact, is really good evidence, if not for the truth of an idea, at least that it's one that needs to be taken really seriously. Forgive my mispronunciations throughout. It seemed fine to me, the the pronunciation. Um, Yeah, no, thanks thanks for making an effort to say sick and sickism. I mean, I know it sounds weird to Western ears, but it is the correct pronunciation. I have to stick up for that. (laughs) All right. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Spencer. It was a really nice conversation. I'm looking forward to seeing finished product.